What a human being gets out of recreation, I call it recreation of oneself, is a renewal of spirit and reduction of stress and increase of competence that can be transferred into other aspects of our lives. So I talk about myself, I guess, as being uh, mission-driven. It's about that. It's offering transformational experiences in the mountains for our guests and for our employees. That's what drives me. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, pumped to bring you the second part of our Tahoe miniseries today, coming off my road trip through the region back in March. Before we get to that, why don't you pop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There is an article there that accompanies this and every Storm Skiing podcast that includes tons of additional context on our conversation, including maps, historical information, photos, and much more. And there's a lot more to the storm than just the podcast. I am kicking out a minimum of 100 articles per year exploring the world of lift serve skiing in North America. And I want you to join me. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Ski Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Palisades Tahoe, here is a quick word from my partner, Aspenware. Close your ticket windows with Aspenware. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution, purpose-built for the mountain resort industry. They create robust platforms that drive revenue while providing a seamless online experience for resort guests. Utilizing their extensive experience with the mountain resort industry, Aspenware creates customized e-commerce platforms that ensure resort guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines or booking their trip online. One client found such success with Aspenware's e-commerce solution that they were able to reduce their ticket windows from 13 down to just two. The resort then reassigned those staff members into positions where they could actively engage with guests and bring value to other areas of the resort. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator. They understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort and they strive to create solutions so good they seem invisible. Visit Aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 127, D. Byrne, President and Chief Operating Officer of Palisades Tahoe, California. There may be no ski area in America that better distills the tensions of modern lift-serve skiing than Palisades Tahoe. A one-time Winter Olympic host, this is a ski area that wears its history proudly, while reckoning with the fact that, for 72 years, the resort carried a name that was highly offensive to the native inhabitants of the valley. This is a ski area that was once two ski areas, two very different ski areas, that were united last year with a long-delayed and environmentally controversial gondola, a product of the Megapass ski area that is driving the hyperactive development of ski resorts across the continent. And this is a ski area that is the rapidly beating heart of the North American free skiing scene, the home mountain of the late Shane McConkie, a place that spearheaded the welcome destruction of the staid, groomer-first ski ethos that dominated lift-serve skiing for decades up until the 1990s. So, how does a funky California free skiing mecca 
retain its soul when it's owned by Colorado-based Altera Mountain Company, laced with one of the most sophisticated lift networks on the continent, and a headliner destination on the mass market Icon Pass? Well, let's find out. My guest today is the President and Chief Operating Officer of Palisades Tahoe, California. With 42 lifts serving more than 270 trails across 6,000 acres on a 2,850-foot vertical drop, Palisades Tahoe is one of the largest ski resorts in the United States and the largest in the state of California. Palisades Tahoe averages 400 inches of annual snowfall, but as of April 24th, had tallied 711 inches for the 2022-23 ski season, an all-time record for the ski area. Once two separate ski areas, the resort is physically united for the first time ever this season with the 2.4-mile-long base-to-base gondola. The resort hosted the 1960 Winter Olympics and is one of the global epicenters of free skiing. She has worked for more than 30 years in the ski industry, including stints at Vail Resorts and Aspen Skiing Company. She joined the Palisades Tahoe team in 2011. Dee Byrne is my guest. Dee, welcome to the storm. I am so excited to talk Palisades Tahoe today. How is your Monday going so far? Hi, Stuart. Thank you. Great to be with you. Boy, what a nice introduction. I'm not sure there's anything more to tell about me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we talk a little bit more about that 700 and 11 inches of snow. That is not a typo or a misspeak. That is actually still on the ground in Palisades Tahoe as we have this conversation. Just unreal, D. What has it been like to be on the ground and live the 2022 to 23 ski season at Palisades Tahoe in person? Oh, it's been quite an adventure. That's for sure. (laughs) It's really nice, quite frankly, to have had the sun pop out mid-March and things to stabilize a bit since then. But yeah, what a what a tremendous season. So fortunate. It was cooler than typical as well out here for the last five months or six months. So that made for the quality of skiing to be just that much better. And what's really interesting here is this glaciated effect that we get where we've got such deep snow depth. And I can't tell you the science behind it and how it all works, but essentially mm-hmm. we're just getting into that really sweet corn cycle. And mm. so... Yeah. So the skiing is is just phenomenal. And we're going to keep going as long as we can. We did announce that we're going to be open through July 4th. And wow. uh, things if things would change, then there is a possibility we'd go further. But likely the 4th will be it. Just unreal. So what does that look like, Dee? Just set this up for us. So we're recording this on April 24th. Is the whole resort still open? Is the base-to-base still running? When do you start to shrink the footprint? Just kind of set expectations for what folks will get if they hit Palisades Tahoe anytime from now through July? You bet. Well, I'm sitting here actually looking out my window. I've got a view of what is KT. and But in front of it is about a 30-foot pile of snow <laughs> here um, off of our parking lot. So it is deep. And we are fully open seven days a week, nine to four through April 30th. That includes all lifts with the exception of some of our redundant lifts that we haven't been operating for the last couple of weeks, but essentially 100% of our terrain. And we'll continue to offer that for the most part into May. Uh, We're going to move to a a five-day-a-week schedule on either side of the resort, so out of each base area. And that's in an effort to give my team a bit of a break 
Um, as you can imagine, it's been a long season. So we'll have public skiing for the guest seven days a week, but again, be shut down on either side a couple of days a week, Monday through Thursday. We will operate on the upper portions of both sides of the resort from KT up, if you will, on the Palisade side and Summit Roundhouse TLC with what we call the Sherwood Scott Switch over at Alpine. So probably about, I haven't thought about this, but probably about 70% of our terrain will remain available. The complex essentially that we're shutting down is the Snow King complex, which is to the east of KT. But yeah, other than that, with the hike to terrain and whatnot, probably 70, 75% through the month of May. And then when we get into June, we're going to ramp down to Friday to Sunday and be available for skiing over at Alpine. We've got a big project on our Funatel gondola. We're replacing the haul rope. It's an extraordinary project. And so essentially it causes us to have to shut down the Palisades Valley location, the lower mountain, kind of up to mid mountain, if you're familiar with that, the length of that lift. However, we will be running our tram for sightseeing starting Mm. mid-June. Yeah, we'll overlay that offering and start sightseeing mid-June and for 4th of July. And we've got some ski team camps coming up here that we're going to be running out of the Shirley Canyon location up there. So we'll have that going, but that won't be available for the public just for those specialty camps. So I think that about wraps it up. We will be open in the Olympic Valley Village for all services and uh, restaurants and whatnot, and should be a really great party. Come out, come out and join us. <laughs> I would love to. Is the base-to-base running on those days when the Palisade side is not open so the folks can start their day there and take the gondola over to Alpine? Thank you for asking. I forgot to mention base-to-base will not be operating after April 30th. Unfortunately, because that's a condition of its operating permit, we, uh, out of respect for the wilderness area and the uh, protected yellow leg frog whose habitat is up uh, in that wilderness area. We're not running the gondola in summertime or after April 30th. And we'll get really deep into the gondola in a bit here. Dee, I do want to ask quickly, because you mentioned your employees. When I was out there in March, about six weeks ago now, there was kind of a sense of exhaustion and everyone had kind of had it. And they were dealing with snow not just at the resort, but at their houses and and clearing it off their roofs and their cars. Everyone was in in good spirits, but there was just a sense of, oh my God, this winter will never end. I think since then, the snow train has slowed down. I would imagine the visitation has slowed down. How are your employees doing, Dee? Thanks for asking, Stuart. That's really kind of you. Uh, Much better. Uh, Yeah, it was becoming very, very challenging, very stressful. Knockwood, uh, we had no bad injuries or catastrophic incidents. Um, I'm still knocking wood every day that that continues, but Hmm. I think we made it through the toughest part and the teams had a break and we're continuing to certainly support that, getting people out of here and and getting them a break before this last phase of the season, if you will. But yeah, thanks for asking. I think that they're starting to have some fun as well, actually uh, actually participating in the sports that that we love and, and that we offer to others. That's great to hear. For those who are not familiar, Palisades Tahoe has long been one of the spring skiing capitals of America. Just set the scene for us, Dee. What is it like to ski that California Tahoe ski scene in the springtime in these warmer months as you know the big traffic dies down and it just becomes something a little bit different? Yeah, the spring skiing spirit in California is, is really huge. It, it's, there's just a freedom 
that uh, of expression that people you can just you see it you feel it you talk about it a lot of high fiving in in various behaviors if you will but literally you see these these amazing athletes hiking across the cliffs and hucking and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sharing that with one another and and then we see um, a lot of families young toddlers with their their parents and. A lot of our ski team programs have come to an end by this time of year. And so you'll see the, the Mighty Mites, the little ones out there in their uniform skiing with their parents and just ripping it up and just having a great time. It's just, it's really special. And not that other places don't have it, but we have it, I think, in spades here. People love, love, love to ski. Yeah, no question. Tahoe is one of the special ski regions of the country. Dee, you actually grew up in another one of the great ski cultures, and I don't think I understood this until recently when I started this podcast, and I saw the reaction to pretty much any content I put out around the Pacific Northwest and the passion the skiers have up there. So you were a native of the Pacific Northwest. Talk about growing up there and growing up there skiing and what that was like. Yeah, thanks. I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and had the good fortune to grow up in a skiing family, and my folks fell in love with the sport. They they went up to Mount Spokane at night uh, with the neighbors and then committed to doing it as a family. And I started skiing at uh, Schweitzer Basin in Idaho. And then uh, when 49 Degrees North opened north of Spokane, my folks made the, the decision to buy a camper and put it on the back of a pickup truck. And oh, cool. Yeah, it was super. And we joined that culture that is still happening in the Northwest where uh, families go up and they camp in the parking lot Friday and Saturday night and spend the weekend. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really very special. Some of my best friends are, are still kids that I grew up with in that parking lot and talk about committed to skiing. Boy, we were up at six o'clock and out the door for first uh, ride and, and then not back in and until the end of the day and frozen clothes and, <laughs> <laughs> I could go on and on with the uh, the memories there. They're so sweet. So I, I often give credit to my the closeness that I, I still am or have with my siblings and my mother, uh, having been from, you know, spending that time together skiing every weekend uh, into our teenage years. At age 14, I started actually teaching skiing. I was a cadet ski instructor at 49 Degrees North, as was my brother. And uh, my sister, they put into a race program and in any case, that's when I got started uh, in this profession, and I've been in it ever mm -hmm. since. <laughs> so, so you get this passion for teaching, and you ended up doing this for decades, Dee, and we can get into that a little bit, but what is it about teaching skiing in particular that ignited a fire with you and made you devote your life, really, and your career to skiing? Uh, thanks for that question. It's hard to describe it in that it's the, the joy that you experience in enabling somebody else to do something, especially in a risk sport, you know, skiing's scary. And so facilitating the process whereby somebody becomes competent and overcomes their fears, as well as becomes skilled going left and right. I mean, it's kind of silly when you think about it, Stuart, right? <laughs> right. Skiing is, you know, sliding around on a, on a slippery surface and trying to control yourself or not. <laughs> yeah. um, it amazes me. I, I was always, I love, love, love turning and the sensations mm -hmm. you get from carving and making round turns. And nowadays it seems like there's more of a, an appetite for a lot of uh, just surfing the terrain, just 
right. you know, bouncing off the terrain and going straight and fast. And there's more freedom, I guess. Whereas and I think that that's because the advent of, of grooming and how well the slopes are prepared, you don't have to turn as well anymore, quite frankly. Right. So I digress a little bit. Um, uh, I guess back to being a teacher, I'm just really passionate about helping others. And, and I really feel like what a human being gets out of recreation, uh, I call it recreation of oneself, um, is a renewal of spirit and reduction of stress and increase of you know competency and their thereby competence that uh, can be transferred into other aspects of our lives. So all of that just is really awesome and fuels my passion to this day. You know, I talk about myself, I guess, as being uh, mission driven or purpose driven, and it's really a, a, it's about that. It's offering transformational experiences in the mountains for our guests and for our employees. That's what drives me. That's a really amazing way of framing it, Dee, and I've never heard it put quite that way before. So you have this thing that, that is intensely gratifying to you, and, and it also puts off the spirit of giving, right? And you're able to follow this because you can do this. The nice thing about skiing is it's kind of a built-in adventure once you learn to do it because you can do it in so many places. So you're at 49 degrees north, great little resort, great community place, pretty good size by a lot of context, but you end up moving on. Take us through this adventure with you. Where did it take you? Yeah. Um, when you said the word adventure, it made me smile um, because it has been such an adventure. And my life has really, uh, my career has turned out in a way that I didn't plan or that I never visualized. But through instruction, I got interested, of course, in the training aspect of it and got involved with PSIA, Professional Ski Instructors of America, and got certified and went through that chain or that hierarchy of certification to the point where I became part of the PSIA national demonstration team, mm -hmm. which is a, wow. a team that travels the country and as well as represents us internationally in uh, essentially the standard of, of teaching and, and skiing that we want to profess and emulate across the United States. So I became part of that team in 1984. And as much as I loved the Northwest and I had, you know, received so much good training in the Northwest, I recognized that I needed to grow or I should grow by experiencing a larger resort in a different market. And so uh, moved to Vail and Beaver Creek at, at that time in 1985 and essentially spent 24 years there going back and forth between Beaver Creek and Vail in different uh, management positions in the schools, ultimately culminating uh, as the Vail Ski School Director and uh, during that period, I also, uh, I did two stints on the demo team. They're four-year tenures, and then you have to retry out. So I did a couple and then uh, realized that I was pretty hooked on this profession by then. <laughs> I liked the business aspect of uh, as well. I'd learned the business of ski school quite well. So I was the Vail Ski School director and started to get a little bit of an itch to expand my skill sets and, and understandings about the business. And didn't have any, again, I never had a strong vision about who I wanted to be or what I wanted to become, but I just knew I was always into growth, right? And so I had gotten to know the team, some of the management team over at Aspen, and ultimately got an offer to get over there and become the business development manager for the schools. And I thought that sounded really intriguing. And so I went ahead and took that leap of faith and moved over there in 2009. I thought that that was going to be the last stop on my road. 
uh, I mean, Aspen is, is Aspen, right? Right. <laughs> I loved everything about them. And I often said at, at that point, I said, you know, I was working for the best publicly held company in the industry and uh, got to work for the best privately held company or ski resort and um, just really loved what Aspen was all about. But then got a call from a from a buddy who I'd worked with in Vail for a lot of years, who became part of the team here when KSL purchased Squaw Valley. He called up and said, "Hey, Andy Worth, the COO, is re-engineering his team, uh, leadership team out here, and we need you out here. And this is going to be so fun for you. We'd like you to uh, run the schools and and the ski team." And so, you know, I wasn't ready to leave, and yet it was so intriguing an offer and a, just the. Obviously, I guess it's kind of the romance of it. We affectionately called this place a 60-year-old startup at that time. Right. <laughs> so I guess having moved from Vail to Aspen, moving is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I, I gained the courage and, and I did it again. And I haven't moved since. So I found my, <laughs> I found my new place. And uh, as much as I love Colorado, love, love, love Colorado in the Northwest, um, Tahoe is really special. And and I'm here to stay and I'm committed to this place and, and its people and the environment, so on and so forth. So that's kind of the progression in a nutshell. So what was that like? You spent a couple of decades in Colorado, grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and obviously your whole life has been skiing and you understand it and you understand the culture and you understand the sport. Curious your reaction when you arrived on the ground at Palisades Tahoe, because there, there's just nothing else like it. It's big, it's exposed, it has this free skiing culture and this reputation, and, and it's this super challenging, extreme mountain. Was there any element almost of culture shock? And not to suggest you didn't know what it was or what to expect, but you know, it's one thing to know about something, and it's another thing to immerse yourself in it. That's right. Yes, there was a culture shock. I Essentially, it's a lot less refined than the Colorado experience, than what you find as a guest or an employee in Vail and Aspen. And I think that comes not only from culture, but just the fact that the weather out here is so much more dramatic. And at the elevation that we're at, it's it's more inconsistent, the temperatures and the moisture content, uh, so on and so forth. So it's that less consistent makes it more variable and everything that comes with that as well as, as I say, with all due respect to our former owners, the Cushing family, this resort was all about uphill transportation and the ski, the ski and ride experience. It was not about the guest service experience and the amenities and the, the little bits of luxury that you can find in a lot of resorts across the country and, well, across the globe. So just less sophisticated, less developed, if you will, or less built out, if you will, guest experience. And and similarly, um, around North, Northern California, they really hadn't invested in that higher end, if you will, more luxurious experience. Um, now, North Star came along and started pushing that envelope here on the North Shore, and others around us were taking a look going, hey, we better get our game going <laughs> as well. Uh, and then the same thing, Heavenly. So, you know, Vail Resorts has done a nice, really nice job actually evolving the guest experience. And we're looking at that and learning from it. And I would say through KSL's ownership um, and now Altera, we're, we're really trying to 
a catch up, if you will, or I think we caught up to a large degree and, and we want to get into a leadership position. Yet it's really, really important to us to stay true to our values around skiing and riding and authentic mountain experiences. So we're interested in cultivating those. And you might hear that, you know, that we want to put a roller coaster in here. That's as far from the truth as, as can be, or a Disney-like, it's been coined a Disney-like development. That is so far from the truth. We just want to have a nice, vibrant uh, village that complements our extraordinary mountain. Yeah, there's definitely a nice little walkable village there on the Palisade side that you've built up, and that has taken absolutely nothing away from the skiing. I want to focus for a moment here, Dee. When you came from Colorado, it was to run the ski school, and Palisades Tahoe has one of the most interesting ski schools, I think, in the country, and that goes back to that free skiing tradition that we've referenced a few times here, because not only do you have the ski teams and the the race teams and the kids programs and all that stuff. You have all this big mountain stuff. So just talk about Palisades Tahoe's ski school and really what that means and the sheer breadth of that operation. Yeah, thanks. I talked a little bit, I think, earlier about the terrain and, the, you know, the natural topography here that is conducive to a natural progression, if you will, of skill kind of on steroids. But I think coming out of the 60 Olympics, I think that um, this is my own take, but this place said, you know, we want to be good and we want to offer good. <laughs> and, and in terms of high quality skiing and the ability to, to be excellent in the sports, you know, the other thing that kind of underneath all of this steward here is the athleticism that skiing and riding are athletic sports that require, you know, athleticism. And so professing that and, and really promoting that aspect of it, helping people to be recreation athletes, if you will, or very serious athletes. So essentially the ski team got established back in the sixties as a result of the Olympics and has been growing ever since. We've got 1800 athletes on our team. Wow. Uh, yeah. All sorts of disciplines within ski and ride, including our, our very big, big mountain segment. And then we've still got the freestyle offering. We've got actually that through a, a nonprofit club that we support on the mountain because they're really, really excellent at delivering that discipline. So we allow them to do that because we value that expertise. Then in our, on our team and in our schools, we offer pretty much everything else. And it's really neat. You can go from a, a single lesson offering of a couple hours here to a commitment uh, for the whole season where you're skiing over 100 days in a team situation and everything in between. So we're really proud of that continuum that we offer both for the public and for our, our serious athletes. Does that make sense in that some of our most popular products for our guests, for the public, are our subs what we call subscription programs, where people sign up and then they ski with us every weekend or in a program over at Alpine, for instance, called Alpine Unlimited, where they can come any day and any time that we're offering a group lesson and join those group lessons. And wow. it's created a real camaraderie of uh, almost a club-like situation. And, and yeah, some of those guests are skiing as much as 60 days a year with us. Wow. Yeah. So really important part of, I guess, our DNA is our ski and ride learning and coaching experiences. I mean, just an incredible operation. And you had to be so proud to oversee that 
nonetheless, the opportunity came up. You had Ron Cohen running the resort, and, and there was a lot going on with the name change and this base-to-base gondola that's now been built. And, you know, it was a job that running Palisades Tahoe definitely came with some challenges. What appealed about that opportunity to you, and how did that opportunity come up? <laughs> oh, boy, sometimes I wonder why. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you said it, you know, Ron, Ron in, came in here on the heels of Andy, and uh, we love Ron and wanted him to stay, and Ron's home literally is in Mammoth and was in Mammoth. His wife was a board of supervisor and elect, an elected position. She couldn't come to Palisades. So we knew that uh, if the right opportunity came up, he'd probably want to go home. And that's what happened. Ron was able to go back and be the president and COO of Mammoth when Mark Brownlee got promoted to essentially COO of all resorts for Altera. So yeah, that opened up the post here. And I have to tell you, I would have been comfortable had any of my peers gotten the job um, as well. We have a really strong team of senior leaders. And I wouldn't have done it, quite frankly, had had that team not been so strong. But uh, I looked at it like, you know, just this passionate labor of love. And I wanted to keep going what we'd started and, yeah, keep the momentum going. And I felt like I could do that. And there were so many big initiatives, as you said, just really on the doorstep, not the horizon, but the doorstep, the name change being the biggest. You know, Ron got that done. I onboarded it essentially the first uh, fall when I took the job. We rolled it out September 13th. I'll never forget that day. I think, in fact, I think you and I talked about it that day. We did. We did. Yep. Yeah, that's when we met. So it, it was first time. Yeah. From that to uh, the gondola and the kind of renaissance that we're going through as a resort, you know, we're trying to trying to, like I said, be part of the big leagues while staying authentic to our core values and just wanted to really keep that progress going. And like I said, I've got the support of an outstanding, very highly skilled and experienced team. So I'm just really a facilitator, quite frankly. Well, you've gotten a lot done. It's hard to believe that you've only been in this job for two years or a little less. Let's talk about the name change first, D. So the resort was known for decades and decades. The, the Olympic side was known as Squaw Valley. Uh, Alpine Meadows side was Alpine Meadows. Um, last year, you made it Palisades Tahoe. How's it going a year and a half on? It's going great for the most part. You know, it's still uh, a challenge. You know, probably about once every two weeks, I get a nasty gram about the name and that we shouldn't have changed it. You've ripped out the heart of it and that sort of thing. Or you've gone woke or too woke. It's BS, so on and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of people that uh, flat out disagree that it was necessary. I still get the also. That's so ridiculous. That wasn't necessary. Squaw was an honorific name. And that's not that's not true. You know, it just wasn't. And so at this point in time, we're pretty conditioned. I don't I, I still write back to those guests and, you know, because my my goal is to enlighten them. But we speak loudly, I guess, or overtly to the fact that everyone's welcome to their opinion. But we want to be a place known to respect everyone, to respect differences, to honor differences, to be welcoming to all people. So it's been a, it's really been, again, another just labor of love and so worthwhile. Am I getting tired sometimes of the difficult conversations? You bet. You kind of go, come on, people, when are you going to wake up? And didn't you see that all federal place names with the name Squaw have been changed and all of California's uh, place names with the name Squaw have been changed? What rock are you under? 
Um, so yeah. I'm just so pleased that uh, under Ron's leadership, we had the foresight and Altera had the you know support of us to to get it done when we did and not be on the heels having to scramble and do that now. Have you seen the other side? Do you, have you had folks who say, okay, I, I get it. I think there was a lot of reflexive resistance to the name change. And, I, you know, I'll admit I didn't understand the etymology of the word before this was proposed and through all of the stuff that Ron and his team had put together and all that background, I got it. And I was like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Have you seen a lot of that? Have folks started to come around and say, okay, you know, I didn't get it at first, but this this was the right thing to do? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, last October, just this last October, we hosted a panel discussion. Ron came up and joined us. It was Ron and I and members of the Washoe tribe. And it was a community meeting, essentially, uh, with Q&A. And it was shocking to me afterward how many people came up and said, oh, my God, I never got it until today. I never really understood. And, you know, isn't that symbolic, right? Of, of how we learn and where we're at as, as people. I could go on and on and talk about everything that's going on around the use of mascotting, use of names, native names for mascotting. And you know, that's changing in our country. But I mean, look at the Redskins, right? There's just, there's a lot going on in that space. But I, I guess I'm still an optimist and I still think the best of people. And I think that so much of the reason that we're at, where we're at as a humankind is just for lack of awareness, lack of, you know, a naivete toward the issues. And so as we learn and evolve, we're changing and doing the right thing. So yes, to answer your question, Stuart, Mm -hmm. I would say, yes, people are coming around, but there's still those naysayers out there. And that's what we say, Hey, you're welcome here too. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, no matter what you're calling it, the skiing is still awesome. And I think that once they get on the hill, they're going to forget about it pretty quick. You know, the other big project that you inherited was the base-to-base gondola. And that is just an awesome machine. It debuted in December. Tell us about the base-to-base gondola, D, and how has it changed the experience of skiing Palisades Tahoe? Well, it's pretty amazing, I think, Stuart, when you can get on a lift and explore that allows you to explore 6,000 acres end-to-end in a day. It's so efficient. So base-to-base, because it is going from the Alpine uh, base to the Palisades or Olympic Valley base. So we're not accessing new skiing terrain, but we're making it super efficient to get to the other lifts that do and or access the terrain on either side. It's 2.4 miles long, about 100 cabins, uh, 1,400 skiers per hour, beautiful, very smooth ride, extraordinary viewing as it crests over the KT Peak and then goes across what is White Wolf terrain into Alpine Meadows. Really just absolutely stunning. A lot of our guests are telling us it feels very European because of the, the breadth of the sightseeing experience and the height. A couple of the towers are pretty tall and they go over some of our most rugged terrain, you know, the, K- the KT Peak. So it's it's pretty thrilling. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really a beautiful machine. We're getting about 20% on any day of skier visitation riding the lift. We're seeing a lot more uh, sightseeing. It, it's continuing to pick up as the season goes along here. You know, we don't allow folks to get off on sightseers to get off on the KT peak 
And they're asking about that in the future, and that would be pretty neat, but we're not, we're not doing that yet. So our resort has a very different feel on the Alpine side compared to the Olympic Valley side, like you've experienced. The Alpine side is much more laid back. It's more rustic. It's more like a typical ski resort experience. Not a lot of commercialization over there. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's uh, not as busy. And so it's got a lot of big bowl skiing, hike to terrain. So if you want to get a kind of a, a, an escape, a, an away feeling out of your experience, then go to Alpine, get away. If you want to be part of it, part of the, part of the uh, high octane energy and, and uh, see the show going on, on off the cliffs and whatnot, come over to the Palisade side. But on either, you can also get extraordinary, I think, grooming. Look, both sides are tremendous. You know, I think there was some concern, D, that laid back vibe that you described at Alpine, that the base-to-base gondola would destroy that or at least compromise it because you're making it so easy for folks to get from one side to the next. With a full season of this lift now behind us, have you seen any of that or has Alpine been able to maintain its character? The latter. Honestly, we were a little nervous and we haven't seen. Alpine has not become overwhelmed. Again, we're seeing about 20% move across either side. And, you know, Alpine Meadows has been growing in popularity. Once it got buttoned up to Squaw, we were Squaw Valley Alpine Meadows, you know, Alpine Meadows became more, more well-known and visitation was growing over there. So I, I think some locals would say, yeah, we're too busy on the weekends, but we have been anyway. And the base-to-base has not impacted it other than positively. It's been fantastic that way. So I'm sure that a lot of people are pretty happy to hear that. And it turns out there's a lot more to a ski resort and what makes it than how many people you pack into it, right? That's right. We did just quickly, for those folks that haven't visited, look forward to you doing so. When you see what we did at the Alpine base to improve the guest experience, we expanded our deck and doubled the size and the seating and similarly, up at the, what is the chalet on Mountain Restaurant, we doubled the seating capacity up there. And again, anticipating that we were going to potentially see those facilities overwhelmed, and they really haven't been. But it's created a really nice atmosphere for our lunch guests. So a tremendous addition to the resort, no doubt. It was not an easy lift to build. And I'm not even talking about the engineering, which went over the course of two years. But there were a lot of environmental concerns around the base-to-base gondolas, construction. What were those concerns, Dee, and how did Palisades Tahoe address them to make sure that the impact of that lift was minimal on the environment it travels through? Yeah, that's right. Uh, boy, this lift has been envisioned for decades, and we started working on it in 2011 uh, in earnest, and so it took essentially a decade to get it uh, built. And so when you look at uh, the, the, the geography here between the Olympic Valley side and the Alpine side is the White uh, River National Forest, or pardon me, White River, that's in, <laughs> that's, that that's came out of my veil brain. <laughs> <laughs> the Granite Peak Wilderness area, oh my goodness. So there's Granite Peak Wilderness and then what is White Wolf uh, private property And so we had to work through the years on various alignments that would essentially keep people out of the wilderness area and off of the White Wolf property. So that was that was tricky. 
And uh, in, in short, essentially, Troy Caldwell, who owns White Wolf, that's 460 acres, he's our business partner and, quite frankly, our landlord. And he already had been because he owns the top of KT Peak. We were fortunate that Troy came on board to embrace having the gondola run through his property and into the Alpine base. So it stayed clearly away from the wilderness area. I mentioned earlier about this yellow-legged frog, and that's uh, he's true, and he's up there, and this is special habitat. So beside the fear that we'd have people entering the wilderness area, there was a fear that um, of just noise, noise pollution from the lift, and light pollution, reflection off of the cabins, the towers, that sort of thing. And so all of those things were taken into consideration, and... Um, you know, ultimately, that was part of the reason that we we agreed to not run the the gondola during the summertime at night or after April 30th is out of respect for the really the the wild natural environment over there. So a lot of adjustments made to respect the environment. You know, there's there's one benefit here, D, that I think often is overlooked, and I I see echoes of this in the fight over the little cottonwood gondola out in Utah which is how environmentally friendly gondolas are. And I'm, I'm someone who I think anytime you can take a car off the road, that's a good thing. And you used to have, and maybe you, you still do on a limited basis, shuttles running several miles. I think it's what's five or seven miles between the Palisades and the Alpine base. And you'd have private vehicles driving as well. Now they can just take a gondola ride. I mean, talk a little bit about that. Am I reaching here or has that been a clear benefit of this lift? You're not reaching, but I can't tell you empirically how many trips we've taken off the road, how much that you know carbon footprint we've we've reduced. But we hear it, we see it, we feel it. It's been terrific. You're correct, Stuart, in that from Olympic Valley to Alpine and back, well, it's one way. It's seven miles, and we do have a lot of guests that are now rather than making that trip during the day, or residents who live in either valley making the trip to ski the other side. Now they're taking the gondola and it's fantastic. We tried, we started the season saying, we're not gonna run the the shuttle service to augment or support the gondola any day that it's running. And honestly, we, we threw that towel in and we gave up on that and we ran the shuttle, not as many trips, one per hour versus two or three per hour, like we used to. But we just, uh, while we're learning the machine, and gaining confidence that we won't need the shuttles, which I think we're going to get to. But in the meantime, we have had, we've had a lot of learning related to uh, wind predictability and how strong before the wind takes us down, you know, how, how, how much can we run in the wind and, and that peak is wind affected. And then we've had a few glitches, you know, my team didn't have a chance. Uh, ideally, you'd have the opportunity to run a lift like this that is this sophisticated for a couple, three weeks before you operated it. We didn't have that opportunity, but we did have Palma on site with us for the first month that we operated, you know, but still we had a lot of, a lot of bugs to work out. And so again, just out of an abundance of caution and concern for guest service, we decided to go ahead and keep the shuttle running, but again, at a very reduced schedule. You remind me that I need to get ridership numbers. It'd be interesting to see what those are now. Uh, because as soon as the weather stabilized, we've been able to run the gondola virtually every day. Uh, we did have a mechanical issue last week and took it down for 
a few days, but uh, we're back up and operating consistently now. So it sounds like you're still learning the machine, and I think skiers are as well. And I'm sure they have some questions as they pass over that dramatic terrain. One of them is, as you look down from the base to base, as you're traveling over KT-22 toward Alpine, you see some old lift towers sitting there. And that's a curiosity. So so enlighten us on what that is. And then after you cross over that, you get to a station at the top of Alpine or, or near there that no one can get on or off of. So what's up with those two things, Dee? What can you tell us about those, those lift towers and that ghost station? Like I said, Stuart, that uh, is private property, 460 acres, owned by Troy and Sue Caldwell. And that area is called White Wolf. And Troy and Sue, are, uh, they have a vision of building that out as a private ski area, an enclave of high-end cabin-type dwellings and uh, base lodge and guide services and so forth. A little bit, if you will, like a Yellowstone-type private club experience. And so that's the vision that Troy's working on. Part of that was that lift that you see, or the towers that you see, that initial lift. He uh, he got that done, and then he hit pause. And, you know, I can't speak for Troy, but this is my understanding. It's just he was gung-ho and then hit pause while he further built out his vision and is getting his investors all dialed in and environmental study done, uh, so on and so forth. But he still does have a goal to string the line on that lift down the line, as well as perhaps put up another lift out of his base area that would go up toward Alpine Meadows and provide his guests for some skiing into what is the Estelle area of Alpine. But I'll just say very clearly, he does not have a vision at this time of opening it up for our guest for Palisades Tahoe guest, but very much keeping keeping it a, a very intimate, unique skiing experience in the Sierras. I don't remember, Stuart, did you get a chance to ride base to base and have you seen White Wolf? I, I rode to the top of KT and I did not get over the Alpine side on the first day. I was going to do it on the second day and then it was on Windhold. So I saw it all from the top of KT, but did not ride the full line. All right. You've got uh, how many more days here? You've got to get out here, my friend. <laughs> I know it. I got, well, it sounds like I, I might have until next season and beyond because I don't know if you're ever closing again. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But well, where I was going with that is White Wolf is just, it's it's just a pocket of, like I said, the most beautiful high altitude terrain in the Sierras. Not that we don't have that at Palisades and Alpine, but he's got a really special footprint over there. And so... That's what's happening. And there's that angle station. Uh, The White Wolf station is literally a place where down the line, when Troy does open his resort for operation, his guests will be able to get on and off the gondola at that point. But until that point, um, our guests do not have that access. How, if at all, D, is any of what you just laid out related to this rollers proposed lift that was on the Alpine Meadows master plan in 2015 is proposed list sort of off the backside into, I believe that Estelle terrain you were talking about. Yeah, that would be, it's, that would be really cool lift, playful terrain up there, completely complimentary experience to Troy's as well as to Alpine. And so we put that in the master plan and it'd be awesome to install that lift down the line, but I don't see us doing that until Troy has his uh, resort up and running. All right, one more question about the base-to-base here, D. I think there was some concern among Palisades regulars that stringing the first leg of the base-to-base up 
not parallel, but sort of across KT22 would overload the KT terrain. You explained to me why, from an engineering point of view, that didn't actually happen, but lay this out for us. Why is why did the the base to base that first leg of it not end up being detrimental to the KT terrain? I have to say the engineers are smart. <laughs> I didn't believe it either, Stuart. I was looking at it. Oh, oh my goodness. But by the way, it comes into the peak. Essentially, if you're coming up from the Olympic Valley Palisade side, you don't have the ability to ski the eastern aspect. And so that traffic is all dumping out on the west. And when you look at the, the west slopes of KT and over to the what is Saddle and then Enchanted Forest, there's just gobs of acreage, essentially. And then, you know, similarly, when you're coming from the Alpine side, you can ski some of what is like GS Bowl and some of the, of the eastern aspect of the peak, but not the other aspect. Bottom line is we're splitting the capacity up there or the aspect. And at 1,400 skiers per hour, you know, compare that to 2,200 or 2,400 on a high-speed quad, the amount of skiers that were that are actually getting off on the peak because most of them are actually going to one base or the other. We've just seen that it hasn't uh, created any any capacity issues or density issues. It's been fun, quite frankly, on the powder days to watch how people access the peak and whether or not they're using the gondola or the KT lift. And, and I don't know who won in that proposition. But again, you're limited on the gondola, the aspect that you can ski compared to when you get off on the KT lift and have the whole thing east to west and all of the north facing easily accessible. So again, you know, in summary, it's been more of a guest satisfier and less a instrument that's ruined the KT experience. Do you find, and I'm not sure if you have this data, but do you find that most folks who get on base to base are going to Alpine rather than using it to get to the top of KT? Yes, uh, except for on powder days. Okay. Except for, that's the qualifier, really. <laughs> right now, especially like, you know, we haven't had, well, we had 10 inches, 11 inches the other day. It got us to that 7-Eleven number, but we haven't really had a powder day for quite a while. And so everybody's pretty much just using it base to base, literally. But coming from back from the Alpine, like, here's what I'll do. I go over to Alpine, but then on my way back, rather than ride to the base area, I get off on KT and enjoy one more run. In the good, day. good strategy. Yeah, exactly. You know, I have listeners from all over the country, D, and a lot of them may not be familiar with the lore around Palisades Tahoe. So if you could just say a word about KT22 Express, the mothership, just the significance culturally of that lift to what Palisades Tahoe is. Yeah, boy, it, it really, it's hard to, it's hard to put it into words. It, it's, it's a nod to who we are as a people and what we talked about earlier, Stuart, this whole free skier and, and uh, expression of skiing uh, as a skier on the mountain. KT22 is probably the most efficient if you will, 2,000 vertical feet of skiing you're going to find for high-end, high-end black, double black diamond skiing in the country. And um, it was the home of Shane McConkey, the uh, what is called the Eagle's Nest, the peak of, of the rock peak, we call it Eagle's Nest. And, and on that, we've got a tribute to Shane, a bronze uh, eagle. 
and with prayer flags that uh, the locals keep strong from there. And it really just, it symbolizes, again, who we are as a people that we respect and, and love these mountains and will utilize them to enhance and renew who we are as individuals. I appreciate you laying that out for us because I think the Icon Pass has brought in a lot more skiers in, in a different sort of skiers than before. Folks who may not necessarily have been tuned into all the different places that there are out there. And and Icon sorts them into a kind of menu or a checklist almost. And you get there to Palisades, you're standing in the base village and you're looking up at those dramatic peaks and you have the tram and you have the Funitel and you have the base-to-base gondola. And then you have this little high-speed quad sitting there and next to all those lifts, it looks underwhelming unless you understand what it is. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So look, base-to-base is amazing and you have a lot of amazing lifts at Palisades Tahoe, but you actually got, believe it or not, two new lifts this year. So you also got Red Dog Express Talk about Red Dog, what it replaced, and what we got in its place. We've got a beautiful new six-pack in the new Red Dog. It replaced an old three-seater, slow three-seater, that essentially terminated right where the gondola is sitting. And so by we moved that, picked that up, and swung it to the, over to the east and just outside of what is Red Wolf Lodge and as well as near our our employee facility, maintenance facility, and mountain operations facility. And by doing that and still maintaining skier access, so off-mountain skier access, you can get easily over to to Red to New Red Dog and in five minutes access all of Snow King. And Snow King by itself, that we call that, that's the name of the, of the peak and then the ridge of skiing to the east of, of the KT complex. And it's got, you know, just tremendous acreage and really, really fun treed skiing, more treed skiing in that complex than, than up on the mountain. But yeah, Red Dog, it gave uh, powder enthusiasts another terrific way to get an uh, incredible number of laps at five minutes on some really steep, playful terrain. Lots of face shots off of that, off of that lift this year. People were ecstatic. The old Red Dog also, it, both lifts actually run over what is the Far East lift, because Red Dog heads up to the toward the east, whereas Far East comes out of our parking lot down by what is the Snow Ventures Complex and comes up to the west to get folks in that section of the parking lot to get them up on the mountain easily, as well as access some great terrain. So in any case, uh, Red Dog goes over the Far East lift, and it used to go really high over. <laughs> and there's a really deep uh, gully, Pulson's Gully, that it crosses. And so to the point where people like me that have a little bit of a fear of heights would not ride that lift unless I <laughs> it was super scary. So in the spirit of guest service, I think you see this generally around the industry now where mountain planners are trying to put the, uh, they are putting lifts closer to the ground. So it makes for a more pleasant ride. And that's certainly what happened with Red Dog. People are, are not intimidated by it anymore. That is a trend I am very much in favor of. I'm like you. I do not like to be up high, especially if the lift does not have a bar. So when I was there, the snow is still pretty deep. You were only loading four passengers on Red Dog, the six pack. Is that still the case? And why were you only able to load four passengers at a time? Good question. Well, that's because you have to have a certain amount of clearance under a lift. 
for safety, you know, obviously. And quite frankly, with all the snow, all of a sudden we didn't have clearance. And, <sighs> and so one of the ways you can, can gain that, you've got two choices, lower the snow or raise the lift. And by having uh, or limiting the load to three or four passengers, you essentially lighten it. And so that's what we were doing. Uh, we're past that now. We've had enough snow melt that we're able to, to load it fully. But if you look around, boy, go on to Mammoth's Instagram. Mammoth had some great pictures this year of their clearance issues. But we had clearance issues in places that we've never experienced before in this resort. So in those places where you can, you get a cat in there and you clear with the cat or you put hand shovelers in like on the upper, uh, I don't know if this was the case when you were here, but on the upper section of KT, we were sending our lift operators up there with our patrol, digging out that line every morning. Yeah, so on and so forth. So that's a typical challenge in a ski resort on these big, big years when most lifts are designed, you know, they're engineered for an average snow year. Our average snow is 400 inches a year, not uh, 700. So <laughs> it was a good problem to have, um, really fun problem to have, actually. And But it's it's good to be past that. So believe it or not, Palisades Tahoe does have some snowmaking, and it seems hard to believe in a year like this you would ever need it. But I, I'm curious, Dee, as you look toward the wildfires that are increasingly endangering the Western Mountains in the summer, can you just tell us a little bit about the role that Palisades Tahoe's snowmaking systems play or, or anticipate possibly playing in any potential wildfires that could come into the area? Sure. Basically, your snowmaking system in a resort is like a, you know, it's a big irrigation system. And so what resorts in the West are doing, well, all over actually, is assuring that you can run your snowmaking in the summertime, should you need to just hook onto those hydrants with hoses to fight off fire or to to wet uh, your facilities. In our case, we don't have snowmaking on the ridges, the upper ridges where fire would come from. So for us, we would be utilizing the snowmaking to wet our facilities and the terrain around them, which we did last year with the mosquito fire. Uh, we were, it was a challenge because we were actually improving the snowmaking on both sides of the resort. So we had to shut down our construction to re-engage the, all the different, you know, connections for the original system to ready the system and prepare for that fire, which fortunately never came into either of our valley. But that's what we did, as well as we have some of these huge agriculture sprinklers, and we hooked into those and put those on the top of our lodges and ran those uh, big rainbirds, I guess they're called. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Give me, I don't know all the names of all the parts and pieces, but um, essentially, yeah, you're, you're using your snowmaking to, to mitigate wildfire threat. And in the case, though, of Big Bear last year, Wade and his team, actually, they saved the resort by uh, activating their snowmaking along the ridgeline of the resort and, and literally fighting the fire. It was an amazing feat and, and a great example of uh, where snowmaking is, as you said, it's, uh, it's not just helping us in the wintertime, but, but helping in the summer. And unfortunately, we do know we, ha we have an example of not necessarily the worst case scenario, but a pretty bad scenario as your neighbor to the south, Sierra Tahoe, lost an entire ski season to the Caldor fire that hit in late 2021. 
Talk about Palisades Tahoe's role in that recovery, D, and how you were able to help Sierra Tahoe recover and have a full 2022 to 23 ski season. Yeah, thanks uh, for asking. And that um, this is uh, really symbolic of how I think we roll in the ski industry as much as uh, we're all various uh, companies, we're all uh, fierce competitors. We're also very cooperative um, when it comes to core values around taking care of our communities and our guests. And so essentially the ski resorts around Tahoe shut down for Labor Day weekend programming and operations to discourage anybody from coming up here. Not that there were a lot of people that were coming up at that time because of the smoke and the threat, but essentially we shut down the operations and we deployed our resources into helping Sierra Tahoe. And during the the heat of the, of the battle, they didn't take us up on, on really any help other than we opened our lodges for their people. And I think we had a couple as all stay here, but we had more of our own people who had evacuated uh, on the West shore, you know, stay in our lodging. But that's the kind of thing that we do, you know, it's just, Hey, how can we help? Can we send you resources? So on and so forth. And then afterward we uh, teamed up with mammoth mammoth sent a cable and we sent a team of mechanics down to uh, Sierra for two weeks and we actually rebuilt one of their lifts. That was before that was in, you know, the aftermath of the fire and was pre-winter and they had hopes at that time they'd be able to get going, not understanding really the magnitude of the fire. And so, uh, but that again, just uh, that's what we did. And I have no doubt that John Rice and his team at Sierra would do the same in turn for us. Should we ever have the need? It was very inspiring to see them weather that and be able to get back on their feet for the last ski season. All right, Dee, let's shift gears here. Let's talk about future plans for both sides of the resort. Starting on Alpine, the Palisade side definitely has, I think, seven high-speed six-packs and all these advanced lifts. Alpine is a little less advanced, does have four high-speed lifts, but you also have a lot of these old Yon lifts. So you have five Yon doubles and a couple triples that date back to the 70s. Long-term, D, what are your priorities as you look to upgrade that lift fleet at Alpine? Yeah, well, it's to upgrade that lift fleet at Alpine. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> as you can imagine, you know, we're one of several in the Altera portfolio. So my brothers and sisters are probably thinking that I've gotten my fair share of lift capital in the near term. So uh, with all due respect, I, I understand that. And yes, we laugh about that. But first in, in priority for Alpine specifically would be to replace the subway lift and the mm-hmm. Meadows lift with one high speed lift. That would be both appropriate for beginners because that's our, it's incredible uh, teaching terrain there subway and meadow, but we could replace those old lifts with a high speed, low profile out of the parking lot and get folks from that parking lot instead of having to go, having to either hike or or go up through the Alpine Lodge, we could get them up on the eastern side of the resort up to what is the Scott Yellow Complex. And we see that as a real advancement in guest service. As well, we could, or we've got a plan to change the the contour of the terrain a bit and, and make our beginner teaching area, you know, just that much better. So that's first in the order of things. And then of course, as you imagine, I can't imagine we've got uh, lots of ideas for upgrading and realigning some of the other lifts. I would love personally to upgrade Lakeview. Literally it's named for its Lakeview. The top of that is <laughs> so beautiful. 
just so beautiful. And it's part of what makes it a nice pod to ski in is because it is very quiet. It's a very slow triple. And so that's nice, but a lot more people would enjoy that (laughs) new technology over there. I think there's enough terrain. The breadth of terrain is large enough and to host more skiers per hour. So that's where I'd like to go in terms of guest service. And then, uh, gosh, I can just keep going, but we'd like to replace the, what is the Alpine bowl chair? Uh, mm-hmm. Hardly ran this year, quite frankly, because the, mm. the top terminal was so buried. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, it just got buried and it was untenable for us to maintain it. And so it's a redundant lift to the summit chair, but it's a nice to have on, on busier days and, and also more efficient to access the the Palisades aspect, actually, of the Alpine side. In any case, we have an idea to replace the yellow and ABC with a, a high-speed quad that would take you out of that base where the, the uh, chalet restaurant is, that part of, of the resort, and get you all the way to the top, which would be a pretty cool experience. So, so one single line that starts near where yellow does now and unloads near where Alpine does now? Yes, might have an angle station. Yeah, not quite sure. We're, we're not planning that one in earnest. That's all just vision. Really, the project we've started planning is the Subway Meadow replacement. All of the others um, are in the master development plan, and they're out there, and we'd love to do them, but uh, nothing in the near future here. Do you think that as Alpine looks to upgrade lifts, you're going to go high speed, or is there still a place within Palisades Tahoe for fixed grip lifts? Fixed grip lifts are awesome. All right. They're the most efficient to maintain and to run. They're super reliable. So I think there is. And I think there is, especially in areas where you want to keep the traffic you know, down, preserve the quality of the skiing experience. So I think most definitely. So we, quite frankly, have a lot of slow fixed, especially on the Palisades side, that I don't think we would ever endeavor to change. Like our iconic Olympic lady or the, right. or the broken arrow lift. On the other hand, you've got a, a lift like Kangaroo over at Alpine. I, I forgot to mention that one. I'd love to see that upgraded. It's such phenomenal race training venue for us. And we could run that lift a little bit higher up into Lower Beaver and not only accomplish uh, or maintain the excellence in that training venue for the, for the racers, but provide a better uh, free ski experience for the guests. Is there a scenario where Kangaroo could go to the top? Um. It could, it could, you know, I haven't, uh, I haven't talked to the guys about that one and you know, our MDP well, Stuart is, yeah. I, I don't think we, do we have that one going to the top? No, it's, I, you know, I think it's too steep up there, but you could have a, a mid unload. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Almost, so, almost definitely. Yeah. What about Scott? Any thoughts on Scott? <laughs> uh, Scott's perfect. Okay. I I think, I think Scott's perfect for, yes, yes, of course. When you think about what we're charging and, uh, you know, just the overall expense to the guests to go skiing and whatnot, you want to offer the best experience with the best technology, right? And we do get, we do get quite a few complaints that Scott is too slow, but it's also why the Scott terrain is so beautiful or, or it's so slow to get skied out. You know, all of the wild terrain, the gentian gully and promised land terrain and whatnot that you get from that lift. So that's why I say it's perfect because it's it's pretty efficient. You know, it's not that long. 
it's just, it feels like it's taking you forever because it's, it's quite slow. So that's my own personal yeah. opinion. And just, you know, I guess I'll just, I'll just share quickly that we've engaged with the SE group to refresh our master development plan and to finalize the one for the Palisade side. You know, we haven't had one. We have a draft for Palisades, but because we're on private land over here, we haven't had to finish that. And I'm, I'm working with my team to get that done, but we're also working with the uh, SE group right away here on updating the, the master development plan for Alpine and want to, you know, stay in good stead with our forest service partners who are such phenomenal partners. So, you know, this is a lot of, this is uh, I'm not a mountain planner. A lot of this is new learning for me. And so I've certainly got my own opinion having skied here for over a decade, but everything of course has to make sense. So it's really fun, really fun though, contemplating all of these wonderful changes. It's always fun to play fantasy ski resort and, and look, I'm with you. I like fixed strip lifts. I think there's a lot of benefits to them. They do feel really slow as you when you have a mixed fleet. So when you when you ride a, a fast lift to the top and then you go over to a pod that has a slower lift, it it underscores the difference in the technology. And that being said, as you ski around the Palisades Tahoe side, I mean, you have one of the most advanced lift fleets on the continent. Really, you have all those six packs. You have all those giant lifts. You do still have quite a few fixed grip lifts. So as you look around the ski area, do you have any that you would like to upgrade? Are you kind of where you want to be on the Palisades side? G- give us give us your thoughts on the evolution of the lift fleet over there. You have 28 lifts altogether. So it's, it's a huge number to work with. Yeah. You're never where you want to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you always want to be progressing. You're always anxious for the next thing. And and um, we've got uh, we've got some challenges with the aging of some of the lifts, and so that's going to get in the way of upgrading some of the others. Quite frankly, for instance, our uh, Washishu lift, Old Squaw One, we're going to have to replace that soon. And um, I'd like to see that go from a uh, four to a six. So that that's probably the next in terms of uh, maintenance or replacement due to maintenance. And then shifting over to the to what is now called Everline, or Everline Resort. <laughs> Down at the end of the eastern portion of, of Snow King, we have what is called the resort chair. And that is probably the biggest experience bust, I think, on the Palisade side of the resort. That's a 13-minute ride on a slow triple. And we'd really like to see that upgraded. Now, that lift is owned by Everline. And so I'm having conversations with them about what's their timeline and what's their appetite, because we'd really like to see, again, that uh, part of the resort kind of catch up with the rest, especially now with Red Dog. But, you know, shifting back to the fixed scripts, I don't think on the, on the Palisade side that we're really anxious to, to upgrade the remaining. Certainly the solitude lift that serves so many families is, I would put that as, I guess, third on my list. Silverado, probably never. That, we're going to keep that terrain. I mean, literally like backcountry experience preserved. Um, what other ones am I forgetting? There, there were plans to, or not plans. There was a proposal to perhaps upgrade Granite Chief oh. to a high-speed yes. emigrant still fix grip. Yes, there was. Um, we were excited to do that. We were excited about a decade to do that, a decade ago, I should mm-hmm. say. 
um, <laughs> and then and then shifted gears. It just after we did the study on on the utilization of the terrain and and it, you know just put further thought into it. I think the realization was that we wouldn't get our bang for our buck as well as we put bang for buck, meaning it's difficult to open that terrain. It opens late. Sometimes we're unable to open it because it is just wild. It's a rock garden, you know, it's just a massive rock garden. It takes a lot of snow back there to be able to groom it. And so hence it's always delayed, you know, opening and, and again, often closed when we're under avalanche control. So you, you want to put, you know, I think you want to spend where you're going to get to, again, the return. And so you're going to put this, these big, beautiful high-speed lifts into places that you can run more consistently and more days, right, per season. So that's, that's a little bit of a guess. Uh, I'd have to go back to the, the management team in the past to ask those questions about granite, but that's my perception. And that we chose to instead deploy our dollars at that time to Big Blue, and then to replacing and upgrading Siberia. So we've, we've turned away from, from granite uh, at this time. It's not, uh, again, on kind of the short uh, priority list. So you mentioned Silverado, D, and you laid this out for me in a really interesting way when we were skiing around together. And I think a lot of listeners would like to hear this as well, because you peer over at the Silverado terrain. It looks like it's stuffed with snow. It looks like awesome terrain. And you know, the assumption is, well, why aren't they opening it? Are they not staffed up? Talk about that terrain and why it's so tricky and what your team has to do to actually get that terrain open. Well, it, it uh, if we talk about granite as being wild, uh, Silverado is even wilder yeah. in that there's no road access to the bottom of the lift. Okay. Well, the first thing the team has to do is create road access. You've got to have cat access, essentially, as you can imagine, for emergency services or purposes, as well as for maintaining the lift and uh, snowmobile access, etc. So it takes uh, about a week in good snow conditions or with adequate depth and then visibility and whatnot. We've got a couple of highly specialized operators and only a couple few that can do it, and they build it from solitude or the bottom of Shirley solitude all the way down the canyon. It's, it's really tricky. I was hoping to get a ride in a cat when we were doing it this year and I missed the window. Uh, but mm. I've got that on my to-do list for future. Cause I hear it's, it's pretty hairball. Um, <laughs> in any case, and then, you know, everything's just, it's a lot of setting up that complex, right? You've got to put your boundaries in and the boundary lines are extensive and across cliff areas and so by the time you set that up, it's an extensive project. And then what happened this year is uh, we got going in there pretty efficiently right away and in January. And then we got overwhelmed with all of the snow, I want to say around the 1st of March. I'd have to go back and look. But in any case, what happened is we, got, we just got so much snow, we couldn't keep up. And so the road, we lost the road and we lost all the boundaries. And then, quite frankly... There's so much snow um, against the towers, you know, and snow moves, right, yeah, with gravity. Right. <laughs> and so um, the towers are are currently, a couple of the towers are askew and for, or out of alignment. And so for listeners, don't worry, that doesn't mean it's unsafe, but you do have to, this is natural in, in skiing, but we would have to do some extensive work to get those towers back in alignment. So we weren't able, uh, after you left Stuart, we weren't able to uh, get that get that pod going again. And that was unfortunate. 
just an amazing operation. You have to run there, D, and, and all the nuances. All right, let's wrap up here today with a talk about the Icon Pass. You know, I, I've been really curious about to watch the access levels change on the Icon Pass, and you've seen several resorts, including Deer Valley, Aspen, Jackson Hole, Alta, and now Taos, actually leave the Base Pass altogether for an upcharge. It's called the Base Plus Pass. Palisades Tahoe, since the beginning, has been unlimited on the base pass with holiday blackouts. And we've seen your sister resort, Crystal Mountain, actually was on the same tier with no blackouts and, and, and left and, and now has its own pass. Curious as you look at visitation patterns over the last several years and as Palisades appears to get busier, especially with a great snow year like this, is that still the right level? And have you ever considered taking Palisades Tahoe or limiting it to five days on the base pass instead of unlimited with blackouts? And if so, why are you sticking with the current levels? Great question. And something that we discuss constantly, quite honestly. And, you know, we've been looking at it since we became Icon and we're looking seriously at access for 24-25. As you've seen heading into this next season, we maintain the same level of access, but it's a constant conversation. It's a constant concern. And a couple of things, I guess, that, about Palisades that make it unique. You know, we're a, we call ourselves a super regional resort, serving more, more of a drive-to market than a fly-in market. Uh, lots of potential through Reno um, with our lovely little airport to increase that, that destination visitation. And we're working on that. But, you know, essentially, other than a few key weekends, and uh, holiday days, and then the extraordinary powder days, uh, where we'll actually sell out or fill up, if you will, even just with our local skiing market. You know, with the exception of those days, we have plenty of capacity. So we're not concerned about our, our especially our on-hill capacity. We've got more than enough. Where we are pinched, it really is our parking and access to the resort. And so certainly lift access contributes to that, right? But the first thing we're going to do following Crystal's lead and some of the other resorts across the country, and, and quite frankly, what, uh, what Vail Resorts recently announced is we're going to implement for this next season by mid-December a blend of reserved paid, reserved carpool, and reserved free parking, and we're hoping that that will solve for, and that, that would only be, let me be clear here, that will only be for weekends and holidays and from like sunrise until noon or one o'clock when we see the you know biggest demand and the challenge hours. So we're hoping, and the studies are, are showing us that we will have the same effect in the community, positive effect by forcing folks to reserve their parking, then it'll take cars off the road. And so our locals can move around the community and run their errands and you know so on and so forth on those peak days. And we can still get people in that might not have gotten a reservation on a bus or a shuttle in a park and ride situation, or they'll come later in the day. So parking really is our first uh, tactic to address the overcrowding on some of those peak days. Again, at the same time, we are looking at our lift access from day to, to season pass and everything in between. And certainly there is a number of creative solutions throughout the industry, you know, including uh, what we're doing in a lot of our Altera resorts that we're looking at and learning from. So 
I would say to listeners, don't be surprised if we make some changes in 24, 25 or beyond. But in the meantime, we're hoping this parking reservation requirement will be a significant solve for the frustration that we all share over over too much traffic in Tahoe. Well, it's fascinating to watch it all evolve, Dee, and I will look forward to seeing what Palisades Tahoe does next. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I really hope that you have a chance to break away because it seems like your season will never end and get some well-deserved rest. But for today, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed that. And I uh, hope, hope to get out there and ski with you again soon. That would be phenomenal. And I appreciate your time, Stuart, and all the interest that you have in Palisades Tahoe and our team. Come back. That's Dee Byrne, President and Chief Operating Officer of Palisades Tahoe, California. Dee, that was awesome and a lot of fun. Thank you so much for that and thank you so much for your time. And thanks again for getting me first tracks on Headwall in March. Dee and I got to enjoy one of those sneaky pow days when there's just a dusting at the base, but eight inches up top. Dee was just bombing around in 85s underfoot. She was cool though. She waited for me awesome time that day and great to follow it up with a deep talk on all things Palisades Tahoe. And thank you all very much for listening. That concludes my Tahoe mini series, but believe me, I will have a lot more Tahoe pods to come in the future. Nothing I'm ready to announce just yet, but I do have another California pod scheduled for you very soon. And that is with the general manager of the incomparable Mount Baldy. Have you skied Baldy? If you live in LA, You have to do it. You will want to after you hear our pod. Lots more headed your way for May, including conversations with the leaders of BAM, Middlebury Snowball, Sun Peaks, and Granite Gorge, New Hampshire. Remember, the very best way to get those episodes as soon as they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.